I want to thank you all and Dr. Fairchild and the elders here for allowing me and my wife to come and, and serve you all after an intro like that. Uh, the sermon better be good, right? But uh, um, uh, we are so blessed to be a part of this church. It was in April of 2020 when I met Dr. Fairchild. And uh, from how we spoke through email, I thought I was going to meet a dude about 6'4", big beefy dude, you know, because that's who Brian is, manly. And when I met him in Roses, he was just, you know, just a tad bit shorter. But nonetheless, he's a mighty man of God, and I love him dearly. And it is a pleasure and a joy uh, to come to this church and to serve all of you because you love the Lord and you love his word. And that is such a blessing. And so with that, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. That is where we will be this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Our text for this morning is verse 21, but I want to give you an overview as to what I taught last time, which were the previous eight verses. And so we will start reading in verse 12 and read through verse 21. Philippians Chapter 1, starting in verse 12, Paul writes to the Philippian church, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Last time I taught verses 12 through 20, and if you'll remember, if I may uh, refresh your, your minds, we looked at the benefits, the response, and the hope and suffering through Paul's life. The benefits, the response, and the hope and suffering. The benefits of suffering. Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church from a Roman prison chained to the Praetorian Roman guard 24-7 throughout the day. And he is not able to work face-to-face with the church directly only by letter. But through his sufferings, the benefit is that the gospel is being spread throughout all of Rome because Paul is able to share the gospel with the Praetorian guard. And through Paul's suffering, that encouraged the Philippian church and other brothers and sisters in Christ to speak the word of God without fear. So that was the benefits of suffering. Then we looked at Paul's response. Although he was suffering, although he was under house arrest, 
although there were many people outside the, in the church, outside of prison, that were preaching a gospel from selfish ambition, and they were sticking their nose up to Paul, saying, Paul, look at you, you're in prison. And we're on the outside, and we get to preach the gospel. Although they were doing that from selfish ambition, Paul's response is, what then? So what? I don't care. The gospel is being preached, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And then we saw his hope and suffering. According to his earnest expectation and hope through the prayers of the saints and through the provision of the Holy Spirit, Paul will not be put to shame in anything because he knows that he has been obedient to Christ and that with all boldness, no matter what happens through his life or his death, Christ will be exalted. And now we find ourselves at a Mount Everest of a Bible verse, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One more time, let's pray now. Father, as we just open your word and look at what is truly an inexhaustible verse, I pray that your spirit would just lead us and guide us and teach us as only you can. All to the glory and praise of your name. Amen and amen. In this verse, in Philippians 1.21, we see the point of the Christian life which is Christ. Yes, is Christ the object of our faith? Yes, is he the hope? Is he where we find all hope, all satisfaction? Yes. But when preparing this sermon, I thought it would be interesting to Google what the point of life is. I think it's always interesting to compare what the Word says to how the secular world thinks. And so I Googled, what is the point of life? What are we doing here? Why are we here? Where are we going? And among my uh, great research skills, I landed on Wikipedia, among other sources and blogs, finding multiple answers. And one answer I found, though, is from an article, and I found it quite interesting, and I want to read you some portions of it. The writer um, of the article tries to answer those questions as to what we are doing here. Where are we going? Why are we here? What is the point of life? And he says this, quote, Life is a paradox, and without dark there is no light. To have meaning means to have no meaning. And by admitting that your life has no meaning, you are opening the infinite of possibilities of creating meaning, end quote. Now, if that made zero sense to you, you are on the right track because that made zero sense to me. And honestly, the whole article was confusing. It was very sad as the writer tries to give the reader some consolation of hope or some idea as to what the point of life is. And the ironic part about it all is that I got it from a website called Claiming Clarity. And there's nothing clear about it. The big statement, however, that was made in the article says this. Quote, in the grand scheme of things, we are just a speck of sand on a beach. I get that. We are even smaller than a speck of sand in the scope of the universe. Not only that, our limited amount of time witnessing this beautiful life is an infinitely small portion of time the universe has existed. With those ideas in mind, the writer says, it would be safe to assume 
that there is no point to life, and I would have to agree, end quote. And you know what? That writer is exactly right. He has no hope. He has no satisfaction. There is no fulfillment. And as he said, there is no point to life because he does not know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. As it is for everyone who does not know Christ. For everyone who rejects the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world, you see, fills their life with material things. Longing for satisfaction. Longing for purpose, but will never find it. Never find satisfaction. Never find fulfillment. But for true believers in Christ, we have salvation, do we not? We have all satisfaction, all fulfillment. We have purpose because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is a key figure in the word who knew his purpose, who is completely consumed with and satisfied in the person and work of Christ, it is the Apostle Paul. Paul knew his purpose. He was completely and totally satisfied in Christ. Christ was everything to Paul. And so it is with every believer. Verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live comes from the Greek word zao. I think that's how you pronounce it. It is a verb in the present active infinitive. That means it is constant. It is continual. It is not an on-off switch sort of deal. That is Paul's statement, right? It is constant and continual for him. It is who he is. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. Paul was sure of one thing, that to live, to truly live is Christ. Day in and day out. Christ is constantly and continually moving Paul, shaping and conforming Paul, consuming his life. And so with that this morning, I want to look at some aspects, if you will, as to what it means to to live is Christ. But the bottom line is this, is that if you are a Christian, if you profess Christ then your life must show it. What characterizes your life must match your profession. If you profess Christ, if you profess to be a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus, then your life must show it. And so, as I said, we'll be looking at a few aspects. We will be looking at the means. How does it happen? How can one say that for me, that for to me, to live is Christ? We will be looking at the effect of what it means to to live for Christ. What does one's life look like who is living for Christ? And then we will look at the result. And these are truths that are probably not new to you, but maybe they are new to some of you here today. And it has been my prayer that we would be reminded and renewed afresh in our hearts, having our minds and affections set on Christ. Amen. So the first aspect is the means. Is the means. To live is Christ is to say that you have no confidence in yourself, but all our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? What I am talking about here is confidence in salvation, our confidence through this life, 
You see a lot of professing Christians misplace their confidence. They say they have confidence in the Lord, but again, their lives don't show it. They put their confidence in things other than Christ, thinking that they might be able to make it to heaven another way. Wealth, social status, good works, charitable deeds, how much money they might give, or even their morals. However, we know that that does nothing for anyone in the end. Nobody can save themselves. Nobody is good enough to tip the scales and somehow earn or merit their way into heaven or to merit salvation. Nobody can better themselves. Nobody can sanctify themselves. We do not save ourselves. We cannot have any confidence in ourselves. So as believers then, what is our confidence in? Our confidence is in Christ, yes? And a prime example of one who had no confidence in himself is Paul. His confidence was never in himself. Pre-conversion, though, Paul had so many things to boast about. He had plenty of things to be confident in to the world standards. If anyone could boast in the flesh, it was the Apostle Paul. Turn just a couple chapters over to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be all over the Bible today that by the time you leave, I want us all to be dripping with Scripture. So, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 4 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost, and the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul had it all. He had it all according to the world standard. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the best training. He was the best at his work. He had some amount of wealth. He was more religious and more zealous than anyone else at his job. But it meant nothing to him. He gave it up. He had counted it all as lost. Counted everything he knew and everything he had going for him as manure, rubbish, filth, so that he may gain Christ. For Paul, to know Christ was worth more than anything he could ever have in this world. Knowing Christ to Paul was worth infinitely more than anything he had going for him. And believe me, to the world's standards, he really did have it all. However, it failed in comparison to the glories of Christ. So Paul's confidence was not in himself, wasn't in his works, it wasn't in his wealth, not his training, not his intellect, but in Christ. His confidence was in Christ, in him alone, because he knows that salvation is the Lord's. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. 
I don't hear enough pages turning. (laughs) Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, Paul writes and says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here it is, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What we have here in these verses, as we all know, is the progression of salvation. And as Paul writes, those whom Christ chose in eternity past, that means he predestined, he made the decision that he would save them. He has called them to himself. He has justified them, meaning put them in a right standing before God. And those whom God has predestined, called, and justified, he also glorifies. And just a note, are we glorified yet? No, we're not. But Paul is so sure of Christ's work and salvation that he writes of glorification as if it's already happened. All of this progression of salvation has been accomplished through Christ. Now tell me, in this section, where does it say anything about you contributing to your salvation? Nowhere does it, nowhere, anywhere in the Bible does it say that we contribute anything to our salvation. Right? No. It is God who calls. It is God who justifies It is God who glorifies from the beginning of one's salvation, its predestination to its end. Glorification is all an act of Almighty God. So therefore, how can we have any confidence in ourselves when salvation is the Lord's? We cannot. Paul knew that. That salvation is all an act of God. Our confidence is in Christ. We belong to Christ because of his grace towards us. Don't turn there, but just listen. Another familiar portion of scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul writes to the Ephesian church saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Again, let me say that your works are good things that you you may have done will not and cannot earn salvation it is all by his grace through our faith which is not of ourselves but it is from God not as a result of works so that in no one may boast if you are saved here today if you are walking with the Lord Jesus if you know him and possess him it is not because of anything that you've done but because of what Christ has done on your behalf and for Paul to have the overwhelming privilege to say for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain Paul had to repent of his sins and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to die and give his life. 
And so it is with every other believer in Christ. And no one can enter the kingdom unless they have confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior and repented of their sins. No one comes by their own works. Our confidence is all in Christ. In the person and work of Christ. And because of that, I am so thankful that salvation is all of God. Because in the end, if it had anything to do with us, if any part were up to us, we would all be doomed. Every other religion in this world is a works-based religion, thinking you can somehow tip the scales and save yourselves. That is wrong. That is wrong. You can do nothing to save yourself, and that is why it took the very Son of God to come and die, taking the penalty for our sins that only an infinite God could. So since salvation is all an act of Almighty God, there is no way we could ever have confidence in anything we do. All our confidence is in Christ. Salvation is the Lord's. To live as Christ means that your confidence is, of your salvation is in Christ and in his work, not your own. Does this characterize your life? Or do you think that you are good enough? Are you striving by your own works? Or is all your confidence in Christ and him alone? To live as Christ means that all our confidence is in Christ. That is the means. Second aspect I want to look at is the effect. The effect if we are saved and we are in Christ, what does that mean? And that is this, to live in Christ, to live as Christ means that you are a new creature. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a couple books over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church starting in verse 16. He says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. What does this mean? That old things have passed away. What it means is that our old self, our sin, what used to characterize our lives, sin, whatever it may be, lust, selfishness, bitterness, deceit, filthy talk, drunkenness, the list could go on. It's gone. It's done away with. We don't live like that anymore because Christ has changed our hearts. He's regenerated us. And therefore, we don't live and act like the rest of the world. Constant habitual sin is no longer a characteristic of our lives. And we know that we won't ever sin again because we do sin as believers. It does not mean that we won't ever sin greatly as believers. But it is not possible for a true believer in Christ who has put all their confidence in Christ, who is a new creature in Christ, to happily remain in unrepentant sin. Don't turn there, but just listen. John, 1 John chapter 1. John is writing to the church, giving them tests to see if they are true believers. 
in Christ so they can assess themselves to see where they are. And he writes in chapter 1, starting in verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I wish we had time to unpack this. But in short, what what John is saying is this, is that if you claim to know God, if you claim to have a relationship with Christ, and to know him, and to possess him, and to be walking with him, yet you walk in darkness, that is sin, constant, habitual sin, then you are a liar. You are lying to yourself, you are lying to those around you, and you do not practice the truth. In other words, you don't know God. Your profession does not match up with your life. But as believers, we walk in the light. We walk with God as He is in the light. What now characterizes our life then, if not sin anymore, is righteousness and holy living. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18, after Paul writes that we are new creatures in Christ and the old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. Verse 18, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, Paul tells us that the very fact that we are new creatures in Christ is an act of God. It is nothing we do. And the reason that we as believers no longer continually sin and are now on a path of righteous living is from God. He saves us. He changes our will and makes us new creatures. And we literally become the righteousness of God. Verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. God took Jesus Christ, who was sinless, and made him sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This all took place on the cross. Yes, as John MacArthur said when talking about this specifically, the cross said this, and it's a rough quote here. He said, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived our lives so that he could treat us as if we lived Jesus's life. Rough quote there. But do you get what that's saying? That on the cross, God treated the son of God, Jesus Christ, as if we, he lived our lives, sinful, rebellious lives, so that he could treat us as if we lived Christ's sinless perfect life what incredible truth amen that is a marvelous truth 
that God treated Jesus as a sinner so that he could treat us as if we lived Christ's sinless life. Make no mistake that if you are a believer here this morning, I hope you realize that when Christ was crucified on the cross, so was your old self. That is why we no longer live in sin. Because our old self was crucified with Christ. Again, Romans 6, verses 7 through Verses 5 through 7, excuse me, Paul says this, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, Paul says that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not die so that he could free us to sin. He died so he could free us from sin. Free us to not sin. Therefore, we no longer entertain the sins for which Christ died for. We no longer find pleasure in the wickedness that made up our lives and put our Savior on the cross. We no longer are in bondage and enslaved to the sin which held us down. Our old self was crucified with Christ. And therefore we are new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed. New things have come. Does this characterize your life? You may have made a profession or a confession at one time. But are you a new creature in Christ? Has your old life of sin passed? Which that leads us to the third aspect. If we are no longer controlled by sin, if we're no longer our old self, but new creatures in Christ, no longer controlled by sin, then what controls us? Well, Christ does. That is the third aspect. The result to live as Christ means that Christ controls us. What do I mean by that when I say that Christ controls us? I mean exactly that. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are slaves to Christ. Now, you may be saying, whoa, Corey, hold on just a minute. I am a slave to nothing. I am the master of the fate. I am the captain of my ship. Wrong. Wrong. You're either a slave of one to one of two things. You're either a slave to sin in which case you are not saved and you do not know the Lord Jesus, or you are a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only two options. Now, you may be saying, okay, we'll back up what you're saying. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'd be happy to show you. The word slave comes from the Greek word doulos, which literally means to be in bondage to, which is found 120 times in the New Testament. And I want us to look at those, not all 120 of them, excuse me, but I do want to look at a few to explain what I mean when I say that we are slaves of the Lord Jesus. First instance that came to my mind was Mary, mother of the Lord Jesus. She refers to herself as a slave to God in Luke 148 after the angel 
foretells Jesus' birth to Mary, and she responds in her magnificent saying, For he has had regard for the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Simeon is another man whom the Holy Spirit was upon, and revealed, and the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not die before seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simeon, after seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as a child and holding in his arms in the temple, said in Luke 2.29, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. Even Jesus spoke of those whom he saved as slaves, specifically in the instance of Luke 12.37 when talking about his second coming. Jesus said, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find awake when he comes. All over the New Testament, the apostles refer to themselves as slaves. Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul again in Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of God. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1 1. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Sec, excuse me, Jude 1 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. So many other places in the New Testament followers of Jesus Christ are spoken of as slaves. Now, just a point of clarification. Are we free in Christ? That's not a rhetorical question. You can, you can answer. Yes. Yes, we are indeed free in Christ. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer in its bondage. But once someone is saved and freed from sin does not mean that they are free and rid of Christ. Why would a true believer want to be free and rid of Christ and free and rid of their sin? That does not make any sense. That is impossible. Once you are free from sin, you are not free from Christ. Many people profess Christ. Again, talking about their profession not matching up with their life. Many people confess Christ because they do not want the consequences of their sin, but they still want their sin. They still live in their sin. That is not a true Christian. A true believer in Christ can only want more and more of Christ. So therefore, true believers are slaves. Why are we slaves? We are slaves because we were bought with a price. Redeemed by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-19 through 19. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is what we were redeemed redeemed with. That is what we were purchased with. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 
Again, we are reminded that it is only Christ and His blood that redeems and saves sinners. We were bought with a high price. It cost Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His life to redeem us. God bought us with that price. And since we are slaves of righteousness, slaves of Jesus Christ, then that makes Him our Lord. If you are in Christ, and you are a slave to him. He is Lord over your A lot of you know I grew up in a Baptist background. And I blew my cover one day when I used the term big church to describe the main church service. I don't know why we always called the main service big church. But that is just what we did. And since then, none of you that know I said that have let that go. But that is okay. But growing up in that background, I heard a lot of talk on the lordship issue. And I heard things said like this often. I was saved at this time. Jesus saved me here, but I did not make him lord until my 30s. I was saved in my teens, but I didn't make him lord until I was in my 20s. Or he's lord over this area of my life, but these areas I haven't made him lord yet. No. That is wrong. That is wrong. If you are in Christ today, he is Lord over all of your life. Jesus Christ does not need you to make him Lord. He already is Lord. And he is Lord over all. And if he isn't Lord of your life, then it's not because you haven't made him Lord. It's because you have not submitted fully to Jesus Christ. He does not need you to make him Lord. He is Lord. And if you have come to true salvation in Christ, then he is Lord over every aspect of your life. And we must submit to him. So not only are we slaves to Christ and he is our Lord, not only does he control us, but our love for Christ controls us. One last time, if you will, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just one more time, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For the love of Christ, what? Controls us. And having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Since all our confidence is in Christ, since we are new creations in Christ, since we are controlled and governed by Christ and are slaves of Christ, and it is him who controls us, having been bought with the Christ, having been bought with a price, and it is our love for Christ that controls us, then what does all this mean? To sum it up, let me give it to you very clearly. To live as Christ means that you no longer live for yourself, but for Christ, who died and rose again on your behalf. If I can make it even a bit more clear, to live as Christ means that your life is no longer about you but about Christ and living for Him. Your whole life is His. 
You no longer live for yourself, to entertain yourself, to please yourself, but to please Christ. Rather, your life is consumed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is precious. He is glorious. He is magnificent. He is the image of the invisible God. He is everything. Yes? Do you know Him? 1 Peter 1.8 And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I have never seen Christ, but I love Him. He is everything to me. He is precious to me. And I want to be obedient to Him. And I want to know Him fully. Therefore, I live for Him. Knowing Christ causes you to live for Him. We no longer live to please ourselves, comfort ourselves, hide away in a comfortable bubble. But we live to honor God, yes? Throughout all the passages we've seen, we live to honor God with our bodies. Our body is His temple to present ourselves as living sacrifices, ambassadors for Christ, to live in obedience to Him and His Word. And shame on us when we've not done so. This does not mean, brothers and sisters, that to live for Christ, to live as Christ means that we won't encounter trouble, that we won't be uncomfortable, that we won't be persecuted, that we won't have trials. In fact, it means quite the opposite. We will go through trials. We will be persecuted. But it is because we live for the Lord, yes. I hate to say it, but I've heard this verse, Philippians 1.21, specifically used in a your best life now sort of sermon. That is not this sermon. The context, nor the verse, nor does anywhere in the Bible say that your best life is right now. Your best life is not right now. May I remind you again that Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He's not in an Airbnb getting three hot meals a day. He is chained to Roman guards sitting in filth, writing this letter by candlelight. Your best life is not now. Paul's best life did not start when he was born. His best life did not start when he was converted. What happens here on this planet from the moment of your salvation through your sanctification to the physical end of your life is all setting the stage as to what's to come in eternity. Brothers and sisters, our best life starts when we die. Why? Because far better to depart and be with Christ. It is far better to depart and be with the Lord. Why? Because we have all of Christ. We have Him fully, knowing Him fully, no longer tainted by sin. It is far exceedingly better than we could ever fathom to depart this corrupt, sin-stricken world and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because then we have all of Him in His full glory. That is why Paul says to die is gain. For those who are true believers in Christ, we gain everything when we die. We gain Christ, knowing him fully in his presence for eternity. If dying is not gain to you, 
if you think dying is some sort of loss, and hear me, it's not some sort of loss. When you die physically, what dies, really? Sin, temptation, trial, and we gain all of Christ. If you think you are losing something when you die, then you may not know Christ. Christ is everything. He is my life. Christ gives all hope. He gives all definition, gives all satisfaction, all fulfillment. He is the goal. He is the prize. Jesus Christ is our life. He predetermined it. He enabled it through his life and death and resurrection, and he controls it to the very end. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Does this characterize your life? Is all your confidence in Christ? Are you a new creation? Have the old things passed and the new things come? Does Christ control your life? Does your love for Christ control you? Is Christ everything to you? Can you honestly identify yourself with Paul and say that for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain? By the grace of God, may it be so. All to the glory and praise of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is found in it. We thank you that because of Christ, we have life, that we can live for him, and that we know that once we have Christ, to die is only gain. For those who know you, may these truths just ring loudly in our hearts, and that 2022 would be a glorious year. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.